0: Just start by saying who you are and how you met Kim.
1: Okay. My name is Duff McKagan. Uh, I met Kim in 1979 uh, when I saw her band with Kurt and Lulu called Red and Black. And I joined that band as a drummer. We became the Fastbacks. I think it was 18 when I was 14, and she would come pick me up in her in her Dawson station wagon to my house, and she would have these mixtapes uh, like Ramones, Cheap Trick, Pistols, The Dam, and she really turned me on to, you know, what would become early influences in in uh, my life as far as music went.
0: And you stayed friends with her over the years. What, what is it like to be friends with her?
1: <laughs> yeah, I've, I've remained good friends with her. I mean, you know, uh, we all go through our ups and downs in life, and, and um, Kim stuck with me through mine, and I've stuck with her through hers, and it's really still that same relationship. I really still look up to her a lot. Um, I get nervous when she comes to one of my shows, more than anybody else. So she came out and saw, you know, my band Guns N' Roses got back together after 23 years. And um, I wasn't nervous playing, like, our first show or or Coachella with a lot of people. Our first big show was Coachella. And then we started the tour, but when, you know, Kim was going to come to one of the Boston shows. And that was about... Eight or nine shows into the tour, the U.S. run, and I was I was kind of gripping the whole time. Like, what's she gonna think? And uh, I always tell her that I just uh, I, I'm super aware that she's there. I don't want to fuck up, you know. Um, I want to make her proud, and uh, I really still just totally look up to her.
0: So, one last question. Tell me. Um Tell me one of the reasons, I can tell there are a lot, but tell me one of the reasons why she's so special to you, why you love
1: her. Kim's just always remained the same solid person. You know, she kicks ass, uh, she's super, she looks at the bright side of things, and no matter what, she's, she's always been there for me. No questions asked.
0: You are listening to the Sub Pop Podcast. I am Arwen Nix here with Alyssa Atkins.
2: Hi, Arwen Nix. So that was
0: Duff McKagan.
2: It was Duff McKagan.
0: Of Guns N' Roses. Fuck yes. I felt pretty cool talking to <laughs> Duff McKagan <laughs> from Guns N' Roses. I'm not going to lie. And I hope that someday someone wants to make thinks that I'm cool enough that they want to make me proud the way Duff wants to
2: make Kim proud. Oh, yeah. That stood out to me absolutely. I can't imagine anyone saying that about me. <laughs> Alyssa <laughs> is a mother of two, by the way. <laughs> but it, it fits and it's so appropriate for their friendship. That's that's a lovely friendship they have there. Yes. And I um,
0: I think that that's a good... like table setting for people to understand that Kim Warnick of the Fastbacks, if you are unfamiliar with her, is just about as cool as it gets. Yep. She was in 1979 when she met Duff, and she is today. <laughs> That's absolutely correct. Um, so I've been friends with Kim for a while, and I knew about the Fastbacks, mm-hmm. and I knew she was super revered, and I uh, i don't know, I knew that she was like a pillar within the Seattle music scene. Right. Right. But a couple years ago, I bought Carrie Brownstein's memoir, *Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl*. You mean like
2: the second it came out?
0: <laughs> pre-ordered. Yeah, I did. I 100% pre-ordered. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> because it's Carrie Brownstein, and how could I not? So I'm sitting there, and I like made a night of it, like taking myself out on a date, <laughs> even though I'm married. Like I took myself out by myself, just for me time, and had my book. I was sitting down and was reading it, and like it's either page one or two where Carrie Brownstein talks about how when she went to a Madonna concert, she knew she was a music fan, uh-huh. but it was pl- seeing people like Kim play that made her realize that's what she wanted to do. Oh, that's awesome. Like in threadbare t-shirts and ripped up jeans, like pushing herself stage. <laughs> up against the stage so she could watch them play guitar. And she was like, yes, that is a glimpse of my future. That is what
2: I want to do. Oh, absolutely. Isn't that's that amazing. Great.
0: And I was like, Holy shit, Kim Warnick is in Carrie Brownstein's book.
2: <laughs> I love that about Carrie. But it's not just, of course, celebrities and well-known people that love the fast facts. And here's what I love, just quickly, <laughs> is that Arwen managed to find a podcast talking to a super fan. But like way back, it's not like just any podcast, This American Life. So in 1996. 96. Archives. This American Life had a segment
0: on one of their episodes about... Uh, music fans people who are super into being a fan of music (laughs) they don't want to play it unlike Gary Brownstein Um, and there's this guy Scott Lee who has been a huge fucking Fastbacks fan forever and Sarah Vowell interviewed him about what it's like to be this unofficial Fastbacks historian and why he feels like he has the passion to do that.
1: When do you think you kind of made the switch between just being a listener and being as Kurt Block called you today super fan
3: I think the transition really happened when I was in law school and uh I had made this tape of uh of my favorite Fastback songs and I was I was walking across uh a very icy cold midway in Buffalo and um despite how cold it was when I listened to this music it really just pumped all this life into me it was it was really a life-affirming experience, as corny as that might sound. But I don't know, I was just really happy at that point. And it was like, it was just a light on me that shone and I hadn't seen it before. And now everything seemed seemed better.
2: I love that. I love that story. And I love that they respect him as much as he loves them. Like, they're just like, that guy's with us. Yeah,
0: it's really sweet. I definitely, we will link to that segment in the show notes, but it is so sweet. It's, 1996,
2: too. Yeah, 96. You know what else came out in 96, I, I have know. to say? What? Hype. A little mm-hmm. rockumentary about <laughs> old Seattle and SubHop's part in it. And in it, so in my in my youth, I remember watching that and really being struck by the fastbacks and their, their like personality and their sense of humor. I mean, they're only in it for a couple of clips, but you really get the sense of, like, those guys are great.
0: We really started playing music because it's fun, which probably most people say,
3: but with that's it's true. <laughs>
2: yeah, everybody else is lying. Everybody else is lying. <laughs> and it's, like, burned in my brain.
0: I... So in the hype documentary that you're talking about, that scene is Kurt, Lulu, and Kim uh-huh. because they were the three like, main members of the Fastbacks because the Fastbacks had 10 or 12 drummers over the years.
2: Starting with death. Starting 10 with death 12. when he was
0: 14 years old. Oh, he was 14? Yeah, and he didn't know how to play drum. He lied to Kim. <laughs> She was to just like, "Hang
2: out, she I was didn't like, know you know he was fourteen he was
0: fourteen, Kim was eighteen, baby duff, and she was like, "We need a drummer, and he's like, I'll do it, <laughs> but then he's like this musical genius, and so he sat down and just fucking shredded. He knew he could do it, yeah, that's where he was supposed to be, yeah, that's fucking great, anyway, so um." That's us talking about Kim Warnick forever, mm-hmm. um, instead of just having you listen to us talking to Kim Warnick. Maybe less of us, more of
2: Kim. <laughs>
0: okay. So here is our interview with Kim.
3: Tell me about your connection to Sub Pop, because you used to work at Sub Pop. Right. Uh, I mean, I've known John and Bruce forever, I feel like. We played a show, I think it was at the Vogue, I forget what year this would have been, but Jonathan asked us if we would want to release a record on Sub Pop. And me and Kurt were like, sure, of course, you know? And I think they put out a compilation, the question is no. I think that's the one. Well, it's funny, I started there stuffing our first double single. Like just for when you started working at pop. Right, but I was just working on the fly, like Jonas, like you wanna come in and make five dollars an hour or get some merch? Like, sure. But I find it amazing that what the first thing I was doing was stuffing our fast packs double singles. <laughs> and then Tris, Chris Daquino yeah. bless his heart. He um didn't wanna do phones. He was a receptionist, didn't want to do them 'em eight hours a day, I guess. Kinda of hard to remember. So they said, Would you wanna do that? Like, sure. So what era is this? <laughs> When they were going out of business for the first time, I think. <laughs> Probably 90, 1990. And so, and I'd never done that before, but I figured it's just answering phones for a punk company. How hard is that? But, so, again, they were having financial difficulties. I remember we, me and Ken, my husband at the time, of the posies, went away on vacation, came back, and found out that most everybody was fired. So it's just me and Jenny Boddy the publicist at the time. That's who's the best. So and I get back in the office like what's going on and Jenny's like they let everybody go. i like oh. But and so I went and talked to John and he goes, "Well, you know, let's just say you'll work here this week. Let's just see what happens." Okay. But really they needed somebody to make sure that these creditors weren't going to get through to John or Bruce. So I was the one that like yeah, he, yeah, he'll call you back. That's what somebody else said. And like, well, it was trial by fire. Like these people were pissed off. They wanted their money and so bill collectors are calling. Well, and you're people the one. that you know that design stuff for him and like, yeah, yeah, I'm the one of all people, the hot seat. <laughs> and so like, well, no, I, I, he's not in right now. He's there. Like, okay, uh, I'll have him call you. And I, you know, while you were out, those little things you'd have to write back before sure. computers. and He probably have a stack this tall.
0: Was it weird to be here when, like, to to come into Sub Pop when, you know, they can't even pay a bill on time, and then all of a sudden there's, like, this just... Influx of lots of money. (laughs) Yeah,
3: influx of lots of money. It's funny that you say that, because I do remember... So this is after they hired people back, or maybe this is... No, no, this is before they let people go. So um, I learned really fast that when you got your paycheck... You get to the bank first, because if you don't, there might not be funds. Yeah. Wow, well, first come, first serve for payday. Yeah, for a while. But I didn't know any different. They probably didn't either. I mean, everybody's learning as they went, which is so cool. And it, it's just so cool it's still here and, and better than ever. I mean, it's, it's the best story. It's a great story. And you, but,
0: like, your story as part of it, I mean, the Fastbacks played with everyone.
3: Something together You know, and for a while we played with a lot of our friends from Canada. We fit in in the Canadian community, rock community better. And keep in mind, we weren't, I didn't think we were very good. We were just kind of a a very punk rock band. But different in that we wanted to be, I mean, we grew up listening to AM radio. yeah. So we were trying to be the queen or something, but it wasn't... So we found the happy medium, which was Buzzcocks, Ramones, mixed in with Queen wanting to be. Right, like this dream punk. Yeah, it was. And so, but in Canada, it seemed, and so in Seattle at that time, you know, in the early 80s, it seemed like there was a lot of just kind of more arty music bands, which were great. like, And a lot of hardcore, which we weren't. I mean, we didn't really fit. And I'm not saying this to try to sound humble. Humble I'm not, but I just never saw us fitting anywhere. Mm-hmm. So if people thought of us like that, or, or girls thought of me as like something that, that I thought of Joan Jett or Susie Quatro as, as somebody busting down the doors, that made me happy. There was times working there, I think somebody who worked there throughout the, that time before Nirvana and then after,
1: mm-hmm.
3: You started. To, I really started to get um, a real clear idea, because when you work in the, hur- in the eye of the hurricane, you don't know really, you don't see anything else, yeah. right? So it wasn't until I went to Europe for the first time that I was in some record store over there, and this is, I just remember looking oh, I went to look up the Fastbacks, see if, if they have any Fastbacks records, like any narcissistic band person would do. Sure. And, uh, no. Like, well, it wouldn't be the first time. So I asked. <laughs> and he said, oh, it's in the grunge section. Like, whoa. And yeah, there was a grunge section, a grunge placeholder. Like, so it's like rock R&B grunge. Yeah. So... Kind of got, and then I'd start seeing Kurt shirts all the time over there, and, like, I just got, it hit me for the first time. You can work at a place like this and be so close to it that you don't really realize it was world domination. Yeah. It was kind of, it was kind of interesting. I got hit with that a few times. It was like, this is, it's bigger than I think. So what did it feel
0: like? Inside the hurricane, in the eye of the hurricane, how was how did the music scene
3: feel being part of it? Then? It was just playing I with Tad, playing with my Honey, playing with all these people. It just wasn't. I guess you could say. I don't know if the phrase "I took it for granted" is real, but um, I didn't think about it. I mean, we were all peers coming up together, so you know, we just would go to each other's shows, and it just seemed Marvel. normal. Yeah, completely, and. We never did play with Nirvana, though. You didn't? No, interesting. That not. really surprises me. Me too. So, to me, like I said, being in the Eye of the Hurricane, this is just what I did every day, and these are the people I talk to every day, and Mark Lanigan comes in, and okay, and Kirk Hammett comes in. That was weird. <laughs> but, you know, it's not, it's still like, I'm just starting to realize that this is bigger than, and I'm sure John and Bruce, same. I mean, yeah. how could you not? You know, especially them, like, how is this? This just won't stop. And then once Nirvana happened, I mean, then it was just, and then, you know, after Kurt, after that day that he, that they found him was, the, that day was insane in the office. What was it like? Well, somebody told me, a uh, person I worked there with, I just walked in to work, I knew he was missing. I'd heard that from Chris a couple nights before, and I knew it wasn't good. Um, walked into work, kind of logging on, and my friend who sat next to me is like, "Hey, did you hear what happened?" And he told me, and I said, "You know, don't say things like that," because I just thought it was gossipy bullshit. Yeah. And then uh, Nils Bernstein comes downstairs crying, I'm like, "Wow!" So it was real. Yeah. I remember. Um, it's such a weird story. So. They closed for the day, and Bruce said, you can stay here if you want. We we're buying beer and pizza, which I chose to do, because if you go outside, if you had like ripped up jeans, reporters would be just in your face. It was They instantly were there. It was crazy how fast people got there wow. from all over the world. It was really a weird, surreal day in every way. But again, being in the eye of the hurricane, that was really where it was, and I felt safer there than anywhere else. You know? Yeah.
0: Well, and of course, like, I'd much rather stay with friends and walk outside and have some stranger ask a question. Did you know him? What was that like? Like, no comment. (laughs) A lot of no comment. How how did the feeling, like, progress after that? After such, like, big news and such big news for, like, the community? I think Seattle shut
3: down. They just circled the wagons. They shut down. And... I don't think many people gave interviews. It just was and and oh my god, that's right. So it was 2 days before the Sub Pop anniversary show. Like a you know, where they have like I know Velocity Girl played and is it the Crocodile? And everybody was like I don't know if we could do this. It was a it was just heavy. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Do you feel like
0: there are other days like that? within the music community that
3: left that kind of mark, like other instruments. Andy Wood. Yeah. Um, I didn't know Lane Staley, but I think any time uh, that happens, I don't know, it makes people really scared.
0: So, I mean, so much of the death that happens in the music community comes from struggling with mental health and struggling with addiction, mm-hmm. which you struggled with. Yeah.
3: Um, but you're sober now. Yes. How long have you been sober? Probably over a couple years. So talk to me about what happened. Um, well, back when we were punk rockers, everybody was drinking all the time. It wasn't weird to me. Mm-hmm. But um, like in the early mid-80s, started shooting coke and heroin and like got addicted real fast. So first time I went into my first rehab was 1989 for heroin. Came out of that and still drank went to meetings sometimes but i wasn't shooting drugs so figured it's okay and then throughout the years the drinking caught up with me and it just got crazy and this is like 2010 things started really ramping up i didn't i couldn't i didn't have a job i was just kind of like a, um it's decades of drinking well yeah it is but see I, I i now look at it like that now but i just didn't even pay attention to that right It's like, well, everybody, all these kids, we're all drunks. That's the thing. And plus I worked in the bar world. So it's like, well, what's weird about doing a bunch of Coke after work and drinking half a bottle of Jaeger? Because everyone else is doing it. Yes, and so to me it was like uh, as long as I could even it out and go home and, you know, maybe watch a fishing show to calm me down on cable. (laughs) Or, you know, something to just hear some blah, blah, blah in the background, like, oh, hopefully I drank enough and, I, you know, taking the edge of the, of the Coke. It just became, you know, like you hear, balancing act. And so finally in 2011, Music Cares kind of, some friends kind of decided, like, this is not good. So, so talk to me about what Music Cares is. Oh, Music Cares is the best. It's through the Grammys, and it's a non-profit, the Grammys, and they do is they help people not only th- for um, addiction, but artists struggling with maybe rent or surgeries, dental they, care. They they step yeah. in to help you, and and you know people that I've told about that that have gone away because of them will say, "Well, it's through the Grammys." I I'm not I don't sell a million records. Like that's exactly why they're doing this. You don't have to. You, if you're an artist, they're working for you. You're. The underdog—that's who they're working for. Cheryl Crow can pay her own way, you know what I mean? Right. So they're like—they're super grassroots, and so they um, stepped in through some stuff in my life. They paid some rent of mine a couple times, and um, they're just the most stellar thing. And so then I went to um, this rehab in LA. I, I like going to rehab. It's a weird thing. I do well what do in it. you like that? I don't know, because I get better, and I feel like I come back into my own brain. Do you think it's the structure? Yeah. A lot of times it is, but it's like, I just want to be like the star student. It's bizarre. <laughs> I was never like that in school. I didn't First care. First time with their hand up in, in rehab? <laughs> Pretty much. Oh, I'll mop today. <laughs> Can I stay here longer? You know? And I just start feeling myself getting better, and... And I'm just very patient, I didn't know that, you know? And so it just wasn't the right fit for me. I did get a couple months sober out of that. I did get a good tan, (laughs) so there's that. But, you know, if nothing else, I was starting to really understand, like this is way bigger, I'm out of control. So came back to Seattle and just, I was okay for a couple months, started drinking and then um, just gave up, tried to kill myself, took a bunch of pills. It was just, like, the weirdest, I just, and I wasn't, it was a really weird place to be. Like, I just gave up. And I figured, like, well, either they'll find me or they won't. So it was New Year's Eve, 2011. And so I remember walking to QFC or whatever, because they were going to close soon. And it was pouring rain, like, I need to get that last bottle of vodka, because they're going to be closed, and I'll be really sick. Um... And so I did that, and then I just got back, and I just... It just was weird. I was having a really good day. I built a fire. I was reading the Star Wars coffee table book. It was like somebody flipped a switch, and, like, I just went back and just took those pills. You just gave up. And I sent a text to a couple people, which was the cry for help, I suppose, but... What did you say? Oh, I don't really remember. Something to the effect of... You know, happy fucking New Year. I just killed myself. I just committed suicide. Something horrifying. And the only reason a couple of friends freaked out about that is that I spelled things wrong. Because the pills were starting to kick in. They're like, this isn't right. And so people called people and the ambulance came and they took me away. So I ended up in Harborview, the psych ward. Um, nobody would let me come home and stay with them because they were scared. It's like, you're going to have to do something. Go away, do something, because you're you're a risk at this point. I'm like, well, okay, but I don't know what to do. And and then a, a good friend, Bradley Sweek, showed up, and he was the one that got me into the Plymouth House out in New Hampshire. So three days later, I moved to New York or to the East Coast and stayed for five months, and then went into sober living in Portland, Maine. That's where I live now. So why stay in Maine? Why didn't you come back to Seattle after that? Um, I just felt like. I was going to do what these people told me to do, because mm-hmm. they were smart, and I was not. So they said, sober living? I said, yes. I just, willingness. I said, yes, yes, oh, yes. Um, I relapse out of two sober houses. I still wasn't getting it fully, but... Um, what were you not getting? That I shouldn't drink anymore. <laughs> that that might not be a good idea for me. And it wasn't like still I was... Still at this point. Like, but it still, I wasn't like raging up there. I would drink a little bit and... Oh, and and it's funny. So I had no money, because I couldn't find a job for, at the beginning. So, but I got food stamps. And uh, I'd heard somebody heard somebody in a meeting talking about being such a low-bottom drunk that they drank vanilla extract. And I thought, oh, bro, you're ter- you're way worse than me. But guess what I found out? Yeah, I did that. So <laughs> I went to the store and bought vanilla extract. And you know how they have the two sizes? Yeah. Okay, so. The small size, you could probably have in your pantry for the rest of your life. I mean, unless you're a serious baker, you don't need much of it, right? No. But they have the other size. And the thing is, I think it's 40 proof. I would buy that and I'd buy the big one and mix it with Coke. Ooh. It was horrifying. But it was, you know, it was on my food stamps. So. But I remember being so paranoid and trying to look good always that when I went up to the cashier, and to pay, I would make sure that I had flour and some frosting and like to look you good. You would stage the whole thing. Oh, completely. For sure. Just to fool the person
0: checking you out at the grocery yeah, store. Yeah, because they
3: don't give a shit. No, they don't. But I was going to make sure that I looked okay. And instantly get outside and throw all that shit away and just walk away with the one thing. Oh, man. So when did you finally get it? Um, well, I think really... The death of my brother in two thousand fourteen is what really just said it just was kind of like done. There's really no other answer. Was it that it scared you? What about? No, it it? was kind of like to honor him. Mm. I guess. Yeah. It just was like a a real awakening, I guess. I'm happy that you're sober. And around, good.
0: and as another person who doesn't drink, it's yeah. always I feel like there's kind of this unspoken like, oh, you stopped too. That's great. Yeah. We made it. You yes, know, made it. Um, but I think it's really interesting because the the community out here in Seattle, specifically the music community and the bar community, there is such heavy drinking. There's yeah. like the rock and roll heavy drinking and the bar heavy drinking, and it's so normal, and that.
3: Well, that's what I was, and right. and because I worked at the cha-cha, I mean, that's really, it just was like, there was my bar shift, and then... But it feels like, at least for me,
0: and correct me if it didn't feel like this for you, but it kind of feels like, well, we're all dying together. Yeah. And yet at the same time, as as dark and bad as that is, people will really rally for care. Like, you had some medical issues, yes. and people... Yeah, they came
3: through, and, and tell again... Me, tell
0: me what happened there.
3: Well... The first time I had this insane 12-pound tumor. That's a baby, by the way. That's a yeah, real big, big that's a baby. Huge baby. So, or small twins. <laughs> yeah, or I'm a big giant grizzly bear or something. <laughs> so uh, that was the first time, and they took that out, and like I'm miraculously thin. And so, But what happened? Like, you, you found out that you had a tumor well, and Well, then... I just had in sand. I didn't want to deal with it. It was like, obviously. And people were like, are you pregnant? Like, no. I'm like, oh. just It was just awful. And I just was scared. I didn't have insurance. I didn't know what to do. And so I just didn't pay attention. and just drank more, did more coke and whatever. That got taken care of. And I think it was like two months later, I was having trouble walking. Like, my right leg was weird and... One day, I couldn't move my leg. Like, I couldn't. It just it just stayed stuck out. I'd have to, like, actually pull it in, and I couldn't even do that. And they did an MRI, and I had two tumors on my spine, which were making me not be able to walk. So they took them off, and they were benign. And they'd even told me, you know, we can't promise that it's going to be okay. And I said, well, it will, of course. And, uh... And then you know, stayed in the hospital for like a month, physical therapy, and then physical therapy. I rehabbed at my brother's, and learned how to walk again.
0: And those medical bills, like the the first tumor that you got removed, there were like
3: benefits. There was benefits, and oh, also tell me about like how the community rallied to help you with that. Eddie Vetter, um, and this is through Edward Bender he's the one he's like we need to do a benefit for you i said don't do that it's embarrassing please so he got in touch with the pearl jam crew and and ed put up a guitar called charity buzz this site that's like for like bet midler and and charity auctions for like the heavy hitters and so he put up a telecaster for me and people could bid on it for a month and i think you have to Pay five thousand just to get in the game. It's you know it's 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 not eBay. So, and uh, it came with a letter he wrote, and a picture Charles Peterson picture of me and Ed backstage at one of the shows we played in Europe. Well, what happened is after a month it went to, God, thirty thousand, and that really saved me from everything. I mean, I was able to keep my apartment in Capitol Hill, go back home, and. You know, luckily my dad stepped in to handle the big part of the money and he would just, you know, put money in my account when I needed it. So crazy. Yeah, it's kind of an Oprah moment, huh? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And I think it's really beautiful that the music community can
0: come together in that way. Like Mm -hmm. whether it's someone who has the ability to put something like that up for auction or I remember there being like just nights at the cha-cha where you worked, where I I feel like there was a night where people could come in and get your hair cut.
3: Oh, no, there was, oh, no, there was, this is so good. During that time, the, Jeff Felt put, um, he bought a bunch of, like, generic black wigs and cut them like my hair and put them in the vending machine. <laughs> oh, that's what yeah. it
0: was. So people could get Kim Warnick's hair. Kim wigs, yeah. Kim
3: wigs. Yeah.
0: Pretty, I forgot about that. That's, that's pretty right. good. Yeah, but there were these different, I remember these different
3: benefits. I yeah, there was a raffle and Sub Pop yeah. brought stuff down. Yeah, I mean, Seattle community, music community is very tight and they take care of their own yeah. pretty
1: incredible
3: Are you still playing music? No. God, <laughs> I'm kind of I'm not gonna say I don't care about it. Of course I do, but no I'm not really interested right now. Yeah. I've gone through a couple of phases like this where I just it's a lot of work and I'm just not I'm not in I'm not feeling it. Yeah. Although I did play my guitar the other day and kind of tried to finish this song I've been trying to finish for three years, but in the end it just pisses me off and like I hate music. <laughs> <laughs> like a lot of people do. This song could be giant. I could be famous. <laughs> <laughs> but instead, I just put it away and like, yeah, that's not happening today. I'll just think about. It. I'll just have a mashed potato and gravy dinner. <laughs> Something more filling and better. What is your life like out there? It's right now? super quiet. It's a very small life. It's a routine. I show up. F- I work at a call center. Show up for work, and go out to dinner with friends. Watch a lot of movies, read, and just—it's very small, and I like it.
0: wanted to make sure that it was recording.
3: <laughs> oh, you want me to start from the beginning? <laughs> so I was born raised in Seattle, and um, then I turned into an alcoholic, and now I'm here. <laughs> I'm just going to use that. Just that'll be the interview. <laughs> That's it. Done. Summary. Easy. Yeah, totally easy. Abridged. Yeah. Do you have any other weird sub-pop stories you want to share while we have you in the murder closet? Well, oh, this one time when the money started coming in, they were doing well. Um, I remember Jonathan walking around to each person's desk. And giving us five hundred dollars cash. This is a Christmas bonus, and we got our own monogrammed, fancy Terry Club bathtub or bath bathrobe, not a bathtub. Monogram Terry... bathrobes and yeah. five hundred dollars cash. Yeah, that is awesome. Seriously, <laughs> it sounds so fun and happy, and it was. But it was such a nobody knew what they were doing. So I remember my mom; she had no, she didn't really understand. Like she worked in a bank, so. She thinks women have to wear, like, a a skirt and nylons or something. And I remember I came over for dinner one night. I'd just come from work. I said, you didn't wear that to work, did you? I think I was wearing a dwarf shirt and ripped up jeans. And I said, well, yeah. Oh, Kim, she was really upset. Like, Mom, yeah, (laughs) this is how it is. Welcome to the grunge world, Mom. Oh, thank God. It's precious. It is. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Thank God, we can wear dirty clothes and, and just band look like shirts and Yeah. Not wash our hair.
2: That's the best. I'm going to go ahead and strongly agree that not washing hair is the best. <laughs> and also raise my hand as a non-hair washer. A non-hair non-daily washer. hair washer. When was the last time you washed your hair? Don't know. But it's not that well I need to don't sometimes. Know, don't care. <laughs> don't know, don't care. Not important. <laughs> Irrelevant. <laughs> Oh
0: God. Kim is great. She is great. It was so nice talking to her and it was, she was in town for the holidays. Um, and she took time out of her schedule visiting with like dear friends and family to come Visit, visit the murder
2: closet and talk to me.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Kim. Thank you, Kim. You are a true
2: treasure. Oh, um, wait. I see a note here and I have to know the answer to it. Okay. I'm sorry to interrupt. <laughs> but I see skydiving Kim and I need to know more. Okay. So
0: Kim Warnick, um, <laughs> who you can find out more about if you go to subpop.fm and click the links. Click near all the pictures the links. <laughs> That Stuart will put there about the fast facts. And I will also put up a video or have Stuart put up a video of Kim skydiving. No. Which happened like a week ago. Recent Kim. Yeah, a couple weeks ago. Recent skydiving. Yeah, Kim. No. For some reason that I cannot fucking fathom, <laughs> decided to jump out of an airplane. Decided to jump out of a motherfucking airplane. <laughs> and she loved it. She's. The wind is just pushing her cheeks back to another state. And she's just grinning the whole time. And then she lands and she just wipes her bangs back into her face. All and right. is just stoked. But it is a pretty hilarious Current video. Current
2: day Kim flying in the sky. Yeah. All right. It's good. She enjoyed it. If that can't get you to Sub Pop FM, I
0: just don't know what will. If it can't, you're probably never gonna go there (laughs) you've probably stopped listening (laughs) hello (laughs) but you can also find all the music at subhop.fm and you can find the subhop podcast on twitter and we're also now on spotify (laughs) so you should
2: follow us there
0: please doesn't that still creep you out though when people say that you should follow
2: us um i guess so I just still think it's such a strange phrase. You follow me. Yeah. Like Pied Piper style.
0: I, I just think of like Dark Alley. <laughs> oh, man. right. Creepy. Yeah. I don't want anyone fucking
2: following me. But I guess I do. Follow us on Spotify. Yeah, that. <laughs> don't listen to Arwen. Anyway. Um, except for when she's thanking people. Thank you, Stuart Fletcher,
0: Chris Jacobs, Megan Jasper, Jonathan Poneman. Oh, I thought you were going to thank me. <laughs> just kidding. Go wash your hair, Alyssa. <laughs> get out of here yeah thanks to those guys absolutely thanks to those guys and again another thank you to Kim Warnick
2: Mm -hmm. I really appreciate it thanks Kim
3: And by the way, to be in the murder closet is bucket list.
0: <laughs> it's an honor to have you. Here. Well, it's an
3: honor to be here because, like I say, uh, I listen to you on my breaks at work, and um, and I love it. I'm, I'm just—I hate when the episode is done. You guys are like crack cocaine. Do you know this? <laughs>